As we turn to the word today, let's just pause momentarily and ask the Lord to quieten our hearts and minds. Lord, your word is a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. Lord, today we pray that as your word illuminates our lives, we would have, Lord, fresh light in dark corners, fresh understanding and perspective of how we can walk. And Lord, light to cause us to be able to stand even when the world around us appears to be shaking. Lord, we ask you that your word today would be all that you promised it to be and it would not return to you void because we ask it in Jesus' name. So, we've been looking at the three big enemies to be delivered from. Enemies that are used as instruments of personal and collective torture by our enemy, the devil. Instruments that will continuously guide us into greater darkness, greater captivity, a greater sense of being lost and alone in the world. These three enemies, these three weapons in our, in our enemy's hands are fear, guilt, and shame. You remember the first week when we looked at fear, we noted that there was this surprising reality that God takes us to a point where we have to admit fear. We have to recognize that, that the world is a fearsome place and that, and that falling into the hands of the living God is a fearsome thing. But having fallen into those hands, we discover that they're the hands of a father who Jesus tells us not to fear. And so knowing about God will not help you be delivered from fear. Only knowing God will help you to be delivered from fear because knowing about him means that you'll be constantly aware of his majesty and might, of his power and of our insignificance in comparison. Likewise, with guilt, we notice this strange mechanism that the Lord uses in the lives of every human being. And that is that he causes us to feel guilt so that we can be delivered from it. He causes us to come under the tutelage of the law. The law becomes our teacher, our guide. And as we recognize our sinfulness in relation to God's law, we cry out in desperation, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
And in that cry of dereliction, of course, we echo the cry of a saviour who said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me to all of this? And then we see with the apostle that in this state of enormous frustration, in this state of genuine spiritual desperation, the solution is found by being in Christ Jesus. By, receiver, by receiving the, the covenant invitation to be one with him, not just to identify with him, but to be one with him, to be deeply connected to him, to be married to him. Because the scriptures tell us in that desperate state, whether we recognize it or not, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here is, here is this amazing reality that all of us, you and I, are beset by fears and guilt. You and I are, are hounded and harried by these pursuing feelings, these nagging doubts. And yet, there's deliverance for all of it. And the third of these overarching enemies, shame, is equally susceptible to the same solution found in Christ Jesus. Fear is something about what we feel. Guilt is about something that we do. Shame is about something that we are. And that's the problem. And that's why shame so often is the most difficult of these enemies to deal with. Today we're going to continue to look at Luke chapter 11 and we're going to read from verse, 35, from verse 45. You'll remember Jesus is having dinner with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law are the, are the religious lawyers whose job it was to interpret the law of God to the masses. Now, both of these groups of people were present with Jesus at dinner. And you'll remember last week that the, the Pharisee who invited him to dinner was surprised that Jesus was not washing his hands of all the cursed and sinful people that he had encountered. And after Jesus finishes addressing the Pharisee in no uncertain terms, the rest of the story reads like this. One of the experts in the law answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, and you experts of the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets 
and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for all of it. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who are entering. Religion is the same everywhere and has been the same in every time. There are religious experts who peddle their wares because they have the time or the intelligence to become experts. Knowledge about God is dependent upon hard work and intelligence. Knowledge of God is dependent on faith. And it's an entirely different reality. But what so often happens within any form of religion, American religion, Jewish religion, Dayton religion, Apex religion, is that there is a subtle sleight of hand and a switching of knowledge from knowledge of to knowledge about. And we, we begin to invest in those who have knowledge about status and superiority. And those who have knowledge about invest in themselves with their their newfound status and superiority and what that will inevitably produce are people who of course are lower in status and who are inferior in relation to those who believe that they're superior. And this is the beginning of a road that leads to the darkness of shame. You see, the teaching of the law, they had all kinds of opportunities to spend time and energy and their God-given intelligence to discover all kinds of things that the average person would never be able to discover. People like me, who has at least three theological degrees and is foolishly attempting to get another one, Why on earth would you do that? How foolish are you? The gaining of knowledge is not in itself a bad thing, but it's very clear from the scriptures that if you are not careful, knowledge will puff up and lead to pride. And pride, by its very nature, will always find others who are inferior. And this is what happened in the time of Jesus 
with the teachers of the law. They had gained incredible encyclopedic knowledge of the Scriptures. Not only the Scriptures, but the teaching of the rabbis. Not only the teaching of the rabbis, but the gatherings into multiple books of the reflections of their students and of the, of the communities of faith that emerged throughout the Holy Land. Communities like the Qumran and the Essene communities of, of Jerusalem. These communities were absolutely given over to the pursuit of knowledge. And if you did not have their knowledge, you were considered at minimum ignorant, but probably cursed. Probably cursed. In other words, knowledge provides you with a sense of blessing. A lack of knowledge provides you with exactly the opposite, to be cursed. And to be cursed means that you live with and you continue to function with shame. And so below the teachers of the law, with the possible exception of the Pharisees, who somehow, because of their own hard work and intelligence, and all of these people, of course, had time to pursue these things because they were richer than everyone else, with the possible exception of the Pharisees, the whole population was considered to be under the curse of God. And Jesus says, that burden that you lay on people, that they can barely carry from morning until dust, you do nothing to help them with. You invest in the religion and the institutions that support you in your position and status. You build tombs for the prophets. It could be, it could be that you just build great buildings as, as an edifice to your leadership and scriptural insight. You invest in the instruments of your religion. You, you, you fund the institutions of, of your religious power and you have hidden the key to knowledge. What knowledge? Knowledge of God. Because the only thing that they talk about is knowledge about God. And if that's the only knowledge you talk about, then you hide the other knowledge. So Jesus didn't have a high opinion of the teachers of the law then or now. I think that would be fair to say. Would you say that that's a, a fairly you know, legitimate interpretation of the text. Yeah? It's an interesting one, this, because most of us who've been raised either in a religious home or in a setting where religion has had a significant impact on the way our family culture has developed we have become familiar with shame. Now, my parents were you know, largely happy pagans until they were saved, and I had the privilege of baptizing them much, much later on in their life. 
But they had grown up in a, a religious environment like everybody else had at the time, and like many of us have. And my mother, you know, we never went to church on, on Sundays, but I wasn't allowed to play football on a Sunday. And I used to say to her, even at the age of six or seven, I said, why not? She said, well, you never know what people will say. And I'd say, well, they'd probably say, good shot, or nice goal, or well, why can't we play football? And, um, and she, she just didn't give any explanation. She basically said, you can't do that. You can't ride your bike. You can't be noisy out in the street. You, you know, I, I, and to this day, it still mystifies me as to what all that was about. But it was basically to do with being shamed for not somehow keeping the Sabbath, even though you didn't really believe in the Sabbath. See what I mean? Now, I know none of you have ever had any of those experiences in your whole life. But then there were other things that were interesting about my childhood. I, um, I was fortunate that around about the age of 16, maybe f- just the end of being 15, just around the, the, the birthday of being 16, something happened to my brain. I think it was probably the Lord who did it although other dyslexics uh, tell me that this happens to them as well, something happened in my brain and I was able to kind of get rewired and suddenly I was capable of reading in a way I never could before. At the age of 11, I had the reading age of a seven-year-old and at the age of 16, I had the reading age of an 18-year-old. It just, just happened. It just so happened that it happened when I decided to read a book for the first time from cover to cover. It was called The Bible. You may have come across it. And um, that was the time when it all came together for me. So I'm assuming it's a miracle. I'm waiting for the Lord to tell me whether it wasn't or not when I get to heaven. I'm just gonna claim it anyway. So, so this is me. I'm, I'm going through life. I'm intelligent. I'm a jolly little soul. I want to have a great time and I don't want people to be sad. But the problem for me was, I couldn't read. And so at the age of six, I know this sounds like it's, you know, some tale from Charles Dickens. So at the age of six, in a school that um, was familiar with corporal punishment, not capital punishment, but corporal punishment, (laughs) where you would get a yard ruler across the back of your legs if you... Uh, didn't do well in your spelling test because the only reason you didn't do well in your spelling test was because you didn't work on it. And if that happened every week, then eventually you know, you'd be brought in front of the class and bent over the desk of the teacher and that would be, that would be what happened. It does, it does sound like Oliver Twist, doesn't it? Can I have some more, sir? <laughs> more? Um, And so at the age of six or seven, they would take all of the children who were not doing well and they would parade them across across the playground to little temporary cabins emblazoned with the name Pratton. That was the name of the company that made the uh, the buildings. But of course, Pratt is, uh, is the name for a fool. 
in English parlance. And so you can imagine how that went over in the playground. And that's where you were consigned until you could get out. And the way that you got out was that you were able to construct a wall of words. I know it's crazy. A wall of words that were all connected to one another. And when you constructed this wall of words, you demonstrated that you could read. Well, I worked out a little algorithm that helped me to build the wall without ever reading any of the words. And so I just continued merrily illiterate for years. Now my brother and sister used to rib me about it and say how foolish it was that I was unable to read and my parents would occasionally join in. And what happened to the little soul of Minnie Mike Breen was that it began to carry a sense of shame an inferiority in the presence of other people. A feeling that I'm not quite up to the mark. I'm not quite able to function like everybody else. Now there'll be some people here today who know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you will have felt the shame of not being able to live up to the mark of your religious expectations. You'll perhaps have failed in your catechism, in your Catholic background. You'll have perhaps disappointed parents or school teachers, and you'll have done it sufficiently many times for you to begin to carry this shadow of shame. And the great problem about shame is that the human mechanism for dealing with it is to hide it. And so it never gets dealt with. And so we reach our later years still covering the shame that we've carried our entire life. Now there is good news this morning. And I know that you can guess who's going to provide it. But before we get there, I want us to dig a little deeper into the causes of shame as far as human beings are concerned. Where did it come from? If it's something that's so significant, if it's something that's so ubiquitous, if it's something that's so universal to so many of us to differing degrees, where did it all come from? Well, if you go back in the Bible to Genesis, you'll discover the answer. At the very beginning of the Bible, in in Genesis chapter one, you'll discover there that God spoke three words, three words over humanity. The three words that he spoke over them was, he blessed them, He gave them every kind of food and he said, you can rule. I wonder, you know, I think I'm sensing a moment where I need a whiteboard. I forgot about it this week. It's right there. Could uh, could we get a couple of people to come? Hang on, he's up before he's even thought about it. Good lad, thank you. No, you don't need it, okay. 
Thanks very much. So, so let's just think about this for a minute. We've got, um, we've got these three words spoken over us. Sorry, Catherine, I hope I'm not messed up your thing now. Got it? Thank you very much, that's brilliant. I can pull it across now, thank you. Thank you, brother. Um, so there's these three words spoken over us. We're blessed, and that means that we're not cursed. And that means that we do not know shame. I really don't want to smash up that beautiful cello. How about that? <laughs> that would really mess things up big time, wouldn't it? Auditions are available next week. <laughs> so, we are blessed by God. We are allowed to rule by God and we are given all things by God. That means that our world before we fall in the garden with God is a world of abundance. Agreed? Is everybody good with that? Abundance? Our world is a world where we have authority. And our world in the garden is a world where we know God's approval every day. Yeah? When you lose all things, scarcity becomes your experience rather than abundance. As soon as scarcity becomes your experience, the result is fear. Everybody get that? Fear is built on scarcity. Scarcity of something. Scarcity of some material, some emotional, some social, some spiritual reality that you think you need. And if it's in scarce supply, you're afraid. Ask the people who are trying to find surgical masks right now. It's a scarcity mentality that creates the fear in us. When you operate in an authority that has been removed from you and yet you still function as if you have it, you trespass the boundaries of your authority. And where there is trespass, of course, there's guilt. What happens when the sense of approval is removed? When the sense of blessing is withdrawn? 
Of course, we know shame. Of course we do. Listen to these words from Genesis 3. Eve and Adam have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it reads like this. Verse eight of, uh, of Genesis three. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the Lord said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Right there, we have fear, guilt, and shame, don't we? Fear because they're hiding, they're afraid. Guilt because they know they've done something that is beyond the remit of their authority, they've trespassed. And they feel shame. They feel shame. In verse seven, right before I started reading, it says this, just after they'd eaten the fruit, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The Lord said to them, who told you you were naked? Who told you to feel shame? Now what's fascinating to me is that God will of course begin with the unfolding revelation of all of the Old Testament scriptures to point towards a savior who will save us from fear who will deliver us from sin and who will take away our shame. But right at the beginning, there is this beautiful moment of God's compassion where even in his enormous disappointment, he shows his concern for his son and daughter. Verse 21. Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Isn't that beautiful? That the Lord would just say, they, obviously they can't be in my presence anymore because they pulled away from my protective covering. The hand that covered them was the hand that caused them not to feel shame. And so now I'll I'll give them something that'll at least be a palliative until the true solution can be given. 
And so you see the Lord sewing together. Imagine the picture in the minds of the first people that read this scripture, seeing the Lord sewing the skins together to cover his son and daughter. Now, the scriptures make it very clear to us that really the mechanism that we looked at at the very beginning where fear seems to be, well it is, seems to be allowed to expand until we get to the point of crying uncle. And at that point, we discover that we're meeting a God who is more than the God of the universe. He's the Father of Jesus Christ and he calls himself our Father and welcomes us with open arms. He is the lawgiver who tells us what it is to be holy. And in our attempt to keep the law, we find ourselves more and more frustrated because we didn't even know what sin was until law came, says Paul. I didn't know what coveting was until the law said, don't covet. Remember the hotel I told you about last week where it says, don't cast your, your line from the balcony? And so guess what everybody does? They cast their line from the balcony and their lead weights break the windows of the, of the rooms below them. The only solution for the hotel was to take the sign down. Stop telling them what the law is. And we get to this point with the frustration that we feel that we can't keep the law, a frustration that is hidden by every teacher of the law because they're no different to you or I. Every person that's ever kept the law knows that they're a lawbreaker. Every person that's tried to, to cover the law with a multitude of other regulations knows that they're not even able to keep the regulations that they made, never mind the ones that God made. And if, and if we're in any doubt, then we go to Jesus and Jesus says, yeah, I'll, I'll see your attempt at keeping the law and I'll just expand the law to be everything you think about. So adultery is not adultery now, it's just thinking about it. And murder is not murder now, it's having hateful and angry thoughts towards other people. And you say, wait, what? I've been striving all, the, the priest told me that if I did this, I'd please God. And now you're telling me that everything inside of me is the problem? What am I supposed to do? Why would Jesus be so cruel? because he wants us to be delivered. He doesn't want us just to manage. Sin is not to be managed, it is to be defeated. Shame is not to be managed, we're to be delivered from it. We're supposed to get to the point of saying with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 that we looked at last week, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. Who will deliver me? Jesus will. Amen. Because there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. In other words, 
in the very place when you can't do it, there's no condemnation. It's not no condemnation when you've made it. There's no condemnation when you can't make it. And Paul, writing to a group of Christians who were wrestling with these things at the very beginning of his missionary enterprise, says this in Galatians chapter three, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Can you imagine how difficult that was for a Pharisee to say that? This is a Pharisee saying that. His whole life he's been trained to look down on everybody else who doesn't keep the law because they're cursed. And now he discovers that the people who try to keep the law are cursed because they can't keep the law. And if they can't keep the law, that means that they're always living in a sense of shame because they know that God can't approve of them. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Are we to cover our shame? Are we to put on our best religious performance so that nobody knows all those thoughts that we've carried in our heart and mind since we were small children? Thoughts of inferiority. Thoughts of spiritual and behavioral shame. Thoughts that are perhaps projected into your mind by parents and authority figures down through the years of your life. What are we to do? Is there any hope for the ashamed? Verse 13 of the same chapter, Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Naked, bleeding, and alone, a criminal in the eyes of the world, Jesus died cursed. No one knows who wrote Hebrews. We'll get to heaven and find out that I was right all along, it is Paul. But whoever it was, this is what the writer to the Hebrews says. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross, scorning 
its shame and sat at the right hand of the throne of God. How are we delivered? You see, here's the thing. If left to ourselves, we'll try to, we'll try to be better people. If left to ourselves, we'll, we'll pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we'll go for it one more time. And we'll say, I'm gonna give up that addiction. I'm gonna overcome that impossible enemy. I'm, I'm gonna do it this time. Left to ourselves, we'll say, I'll find a solution for my shame and I'll cover it with such levels of achievement that nobody will know how much shame I feel. I'll overachieve every day of my life. Nobody will know. And for each qualification and each achievement, you'll sew another fig leaf together and cover the shame that you feel. Or, or by faith receive the blessing of God, which removes the curse and completely extinguishes every element of shame. Because where there is the blessing, there cannot be the shame. And how do you receive the blessing? Only by faith. You receive forgiveness, how? By faith. You're delivered from fear, how? By faith. And how then, friends? Are you to be free from shame? Tell me. By faith. And faith comes by what? By hearing the word. And what is the word? The word is quite simple. He bore the curse for us. And there is no shame because Jesus died with the shame and took it to the grave and rose again and hallelujah does not carry it today. And if we're in him, there is no shame. Now the problem for most of us, me included, is that we have these deeply inherited mechanisms of shame management. And we have to re-educate our instincts so that we step into faith rather than into human striving. And so there's the message for today. The message for today is simply this. There is no shame. All of the curse has gone. Jesus has fulfilled the law perfectly. He has 
carried away our shame. And today, we receive that truth by faith again. It's not that you get saved again, but Paul speaks about it like this. He says, our, our life is from faith to faith, from one degree of glory to another. And there's nobody in this room who doesn't need to grow in their appreciation that they're free from fear, in their understanding that they're free from guilt, and in their absolute certainty that they're free from shame. But it may be that today is one of those breakthrough moments for you. That today, the voices of the old unhelpful mentors will be silenced. And you'll hear the voice of Jesus saying, the blessing of the Father that is upon me is upon you. Because this is what God says to you. You are my child whom I love. With you, I am very pleased. Amen? I'm going to ask Chris and the band to come and we'll try and get this whiteboard out of the way. And This kind of holy moment right now is a moment when, of course, all of us need to be doing business with the Lord and that's why we have this opportunity to sing again. But we're here in community. We're here to be a help and not a hindrance to one another. And so... What we need so often are the prayers of those around us to support us in the decisions that we make. And I know for many of you today, you've made this decision to go back to default, to recalibrate your inner life and say, no, that's right. I'm not gonna live with shame anymore. I'm gonna receive what Jesus did by faith every day and it's gonna change the way I think and change the way I behave. If that's you, then in the singing of this last song, I'd like you to come. The prayer team will be just delighted to pray with you. And they won't be praying with you as people who are superior to you. They won't be praying with you as people who've got some kind of secret knowledge of God that you don't have. They'll be praying with you as sisters and brothers who stand with you in equality knowing that we need to share in these things so often if we're going to make the breakthrough that God has for us. God has a breakthrough for you today. Be sure that you embrace it and use your body to tell him as you come.